0: To um, our series and and today's message, I I really, I did tweak it just a little bit, but really today's message kind of falls into line with everything that's going on in the world. And and, um, in these six lessons or so that we're going to be doing together, we're calling it "Seeing the King" or "See the King," and, and we're just trying to kind of purely look. At Jesus to try and cut through all the noise and get behind all of the the confusion and distractions that might be around Jesus, and it just seems like so many people like Jesus. Even a lot of his critics today and skeptics and unbelievers today seem to like Jesus and what he was all about. But it doesn't seem like enough of us follow him. Even though about a third of the world's population does consider themselves or call themselves Jesus followers. And last week, excuse me, when we were kind of introducing um, these lessons, we. Uh, landed on the idea that Jesus came to bring something brand new into existence. And it was something that had been promised for a long time. It was a way of doing life, a way of interacting with God that had been talked about for a long time, but nobody had seen it yet. It had not been brought into existence. And in Jesus, in his message and his mission and what he did, we we see Jesus cons- uh, consistently just redefining power and influence and, and redefining love in relationships. And thank goodness for that. And, and then he even redefines religion. He even redefines what it means in the ways that we think about God and, and what it might mean to have a system of religion where we kind of just take care, care of our guilt versus having a system of being in relationship with God where we are transformed, where we are changed from the kind of people who need to get rid of guilt all the time into something completely different. And that's a little bit, uh, again, it kind of goes hand in hand with what we're going to talk about today. And we kind of boiled it down to three things, and we could probably go beyond these three, but we landed on these three things that Jesus, over the course of these lessons, we're going to see that Jesus brought something brand new. He brought three three things in particular, a new covenant or a new way of being in relationship with God. And the word covenant, you know, we don't really use that too much anymore. We use the word contract in our um, society a little bit more. And a covenant's a little bit different than a contract. It kind of talks about relationship more than just kind of a legal obligation but he brought a new way of being in relationship with God. And then he gave this new command to his followers, a singular ethic that kind of overarches and encompasses everything and that if we will live our lives by this, use this, as the filter and the lens through which we make every decision in life that we will indeed find ourselves following Jesus. And all of these are or these two things together rather, kind of consisting or making up what it might mean to be a part of this new movement, this new Jesus movement. And that's the thing that we call the church. And so Last week, we talked about these three or kind of introduced these three things and kind of introduced ourselves to uh, Jesus and the guy that came before him, you know, the guy that was kind of like the warm-up act to Jesus. His name was John, and they called him John the Baptizer because they had never seen anybody dunking people in water before. Baptism in the Old Testament or in in that intertestamental period was something that you would do on your own, but John was actually dunking people in water, and even in Jesus' baptism, we can kind of see hints of Jesus doing things in a new way because Jesus is the guy. Jesus is the leader of the movement in these new things. And he comes to John, who's one of the guys under the guy, and he says, hey, I want you to baptize me. And John says, no, 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 I'm not supposed to baptize you. You're greater than me. You're supposed to baptize me. And even in that baptism of Jesus, we see a little hint that Jesus was redefining power and influence and placing himself under someone else. And and so Jesus says, no, you have to do this. And so John baptizes them. And then we see this sign kind of giving us a hint as to who Jesus was. So, So that's where we pick up today. And boom, here's Jesus. And the stage is set. And John, you know, all eyes have been on John. And then John tells everybody, look. And so all eyes turn to Jesus. And and the stage is set and the microphone's ready and the spotlight's there. And John kind of steps behind the curtain, as it were. and Everybody's ready for Jesus to step up front and center. And then Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the, the three of the writers that wrote about Jesus' public ministry, it's, you know, the first four documents in, in your Bible, in the new part of your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they kind of tell you about the, the, the three years of Jesus' public ministry. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us the same thing, that right as he was there being called into the spotlight, instead of stepping up to the mic, Jesus actually fades into the background. He actually headed off into the distance. And Matthew put it this way. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He took off into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And I I put the Greek word for this up here because I wanted to talk about this. By the diabolos. And this word is used like 34 times in, in the New Testament to talk about this personification of evil. This is where we get our English word devil. It's also where we get our English word diabolical. It's, and, and literally what it's talking about is an accuser. Someone who takes you into a situation where you are almost guaranteed to fail and then once you fail, he tells all your dirt. Like all of that is kind of summed up in this one Greek word, diabolos. It's an evil force that does exactly what we see being done with Jesus right here. Isolates us, cuts us off, and then, and then offers us shortcuts to, to getting things, shortcuts to this emotion that we might think is love, shortcuts to wealth, or shortcuts to a dopamine release, or shortcuts to power and to ruling, also that he can eventually come back to point a finger at us before God, to tell all of our dirt, to accuse us, which is what his name means, the accuser. And maybe some of you are thinking, well, hold on, is this the part where you're trying to get me to believe in the guy with red horns and and hooves, or in the red suit with horns and hooves and a pointy tail? And, And what I would say to you is that, no, there is a force of evil way more sophisticated than any of the caricatures that have been presented to us. I'm talking about, if you think back to your life, I'm talking about the times in your life that you look back on now and you think, what in the world was I thinking? Why in the world did I do that? Why in the world did I, did I take that? Why in the world would I ever say, it? that's not who I am. Right, and we even say things like, If I ever did that, I don't think I could live with myself. Right, like this, there's just this psychological thing even that happens, and some of the acts that we see people doing, and maybe even that we have done ourselves, that we just got to distance ourselves from that. But yet, there's this haunting voice, there's this accusation that just follows us around periods of our life, moments in our life, decisions, maybe even whole seasons of our life, where when we look back on it, we think, Man, I cannot escape the memory of what happened there. And so Jesus is being taken out by this force, this devil, the devil, to be tempted out into the wilderness. And, and, and so, you know, we kind of got caught up from last week, and Jesus is making his way into the wilderness. It's going to take Jesus a little while to get there. So while Jesus is walking, I want us to shift subjects for a little bit. Is that all right? This is what we call in speaking a segue. It was horribly abrupt, but hope, hopefully you guys will stick with me just a little bit. Jesus is walking off. We're going to stop and talk about something else because we're going to come back to Jesus in a little bit at the end of the message and look at an idea that we have to kind of explore off to the side first. And, and I want to talk for a little bit since we're in church today. I want to talk about temples and images. And what temples are and, and kind of how temples work. What happens usually is that people worship a god or a deity, some kind of force. And then to honor that god, they build that god a house. And they call it a temple. And then what they do is that so that people will know what their god or their deity is like, they'll put a picture or they'll put a statue of their deity over the door or in front of the house so that you know what the god of that house is like. And as you look at that picture, you look at that statue, you can kind of understand some things about that god. For example, a god of war might have a very serious face and a weapon in his hands, right? A goddess of of love might have flowers and a a smile on her face, right? And maybe a god that's supposed to signify incredible strength might have an elephant trunk to kind of remind us of the strength of an elephant. Or gods of fertility might not be suitable for children to look at, right? Right? I can remember uh, going to visit at one time, my, my grandmother uh, lived in, in New Mexico, and she was into Native American art, and she actually had some figurines of Native American art there in her house, and I can remember going to, to visit her and, and seeing those things and having to say, Mom, what's that? You know, and you're chuckling, but hey, 16 is a confusing age for a lot of us, you know, just, but, but there's something interesting about the Judeo-Christian God. When he he shows up to the people of Israel, they didn't have a house at first. And God kind of helped them to build a house for him later on. But they didn't have a house at first. They didn't have a picture of their God. In fact, we talked about this last week. About 60 years before Jesus was born, Rome kind of took over that part of the world. And the Roman general Pompey marched into Jerusalem, marched into their temple And he marched into their their inner room where nobody else but one guy was allowed to go. And he marched into that room, and he kind of looked around. And then he stepped back outside and said, hey, these Jewish people are atheists. And why did he say that? Because there was no picture of their God. Well, why didn't they have a picture of their God? Why didn't they have an image of their God? And there's a reason why. See, we call it the Old Testament in our Bible. But for the Jewish people, that was just their Bible. They had all of these old scriptures. And we know, if we go back to the very first book in our Bibles, it's called Genesis. It's about the beginning of everything. And in that book, God tells us that he is the creator of everything. He is the one creator, God, who has made the world and everything in it. And the Jewish people understood this as a picture of God making himself a temple. So when God wanted to make a temple, he made the world. And then he was meant to live in this space with people. But then when it came time for God to put an image or a statue over the door, God did something very interesting. Genesis 1 and 26 says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image after our likeness so that they may rule. And the role of this image of God, which was people, was to reflect the wisdom and the power and the justice and the goodness of God out into the world. That's what people were made for, to be the image of God, to be the image over his temple and to exercise wisdom and judgment and leverage our authority and our power over creation and to do all of that in such a way that we would show the rest of creation and that we would show each other and constantly remind each other this is what our God looks like. And so God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female. He created them. But then we know what happened. People messed up the picture. We twisted the image. We got it wrong. And we do power in different ways than God does power. We do love in different ways than God meant for love to be done. Justice and our wisdom is limited and we're weak at times and we fail and we have flaws and we have faults at times and and we have damaged what God looks like to the point where it seems like to me, and maybe this is a judgment call and maybe I just need to step back, but it seems like to me when I look at the news, when I look look at what's going on in the world, it seems like the majority of people don't look like a good God at all. But yet when we look at people, We're supposed to see God. And so, then all through history, what we see is God's temple being broken down and and, and, and containing broken reflections of a good God. And we see empire rising against empire, and each empire is more violent than the last. In fact, that's how they get to be the next empire. They have to be bigger and badder and have stronger bombs and bigger guns. and, And God's temple ends up being full of suffering and pain, and disease, and and there's confusion everywhere, and there's competing systems of government, like our ideas of how to run God's creation are better than your ideas, and we say, no, our ideas of how to run things are better than yours, and we're going to bomb you to prove it. And we have all of this chaos going on and nobody can seem to see what humanity should look like anymore because we have lost the pure and perfect image of a good, good, good creator. And it's like we've become these broken mirrors that are supposed to reflect God. And, and we can even see it at times, right? There are moments, there, there are flashes, there are glimpses. You know, when we see something that's pure and that's truly good, it then seems like the angle changes or time passes by or the light fades, you know, when something happens. And then again, all we can see is the brokenness of each other. And instead of reflecting God, we end up reflecting our own brokenness to each other. And people say things like this all the time, and I'm not doing this to demean anybody. These are real issues that people wrestle with. You'll hear people say things like, well, I'm an alcoholic because my dad was an alcoholic. Reflecting a broken image of what a father should look like. Well, I'm this way because my last relationship left me this way. And so now I have built up walls, and my idea of relationship, my picture of what relationships should look like, it's different now. And what happened, it has changed from the way that God had made it because we are reflecting the brokenness that is around us, and we can't forget the wrongs that have been done to us. And, and it just kind of seeps out of us in anger and lashing, and it's, it's real, and it's serious, and it hurts, and it's all around us. If it's not us, it's in people that we know. If it's not us, it's people that we love. If it's not us, it's people that we all care for. And again, I do not say this in condemnation. I am speaking hope to you today that that is not the way that God intended your life to be. I bring you Good news that things can be different. There is a healing that can happen. There is a new day and a new reality. But see, you got to shift the view. You got to shift what you're looking at. You have to change what you choose to reflect. We weren't meant to reflect our parents, not even great parents. We were created to reflect God. And every generation has to wrestle with that and recalibrate it to make sure that we are not looking at other human beings, but that we are looking to a heavenly father. We were not created to reflect each other's ideas and each other's value systems, even good ideas and even great value systems. And every one of us in every relationship, we have to do some recalibrating and make sure that we are not looking to each other, but that we are looking at God. We need to see God again. Our world needs to see God again. Those people in Syria need to get a fresh view of God. We in America need to get a fresh view of a good, good creator God. So we have to see God again. We have to look at God again. And we have to see God in fresh ways that influence us to choose him. We have to see God purely. We have to see God in all of his beauty in such a way that we are drawn to him, that we willingly reflect his goodness and his mercy and his power into our lives and into our worlds. Well, that sounds good. Sounds great. I could probably go person by person and you all say, okay, Jared, I'm on. I'm on board. I'm with you on that. Show me God. Show us God. God. Because here we are in 2018, and it seems like there are about seven and a half billion competing pictures of God. So, Jared, when did God ever give us a corrected picture? If all we have around us are broken pictures, when did He ever give us a corrected image of what He looks like? When did He ever give us a correct view? of relationships and and power? When did he ever show us the right way to do forgiveness and to do wealth and resource? Just show me God and I'll be on my way. I'll make that step. I'll move forward in the process. If you can just show me God without all of those other things getting in the way. And that's why we're doing this series, because we need to see God with nothing else getting in the way. Now, the good news is we're not the first people to wrestle with this. Even some of Jesus' disciples living right there with Jesus, walking, talking with Jesus, listening to Jesus right there 2,000 years ago, first century Jerusalem. They're there with Jesus, and they're telling him, just show us God. We get that you're here to start a new thing and a new way of interacting with God. We get that our idea of religion has kind of failed people. Like when people look at our religion, they don't want anything to do with our God. We get that. we got to change that. You're going to overthrow that and do something different. We're on board with that, but we still need to see God. We get that our national aspirations as the people of Israel, it's kind of made the people around us, the nations around us, they don't want anything to do with our God. They don't want anything to do with the way that we live. So you're going to change that. Fine, we're on board with it. But we want to see God. And Jesus, since you seem to have some kind of inside track with heaven, Philip said, Lord, will you please show us the Father? And that will be enough for us. Jesus, just show us what the Father looks like. We thought we knew what power looks like. But now that you're showing, you, you've showed up, it looks more like an abuse of power. We thought we knew how to live in relationship with each other, but now more people get divorced and stay married, and that was actually a thing going on when Jesus showed up. So, Jesus, we, we maybe need to rethink the love and the relationship thing and, and the money thing. Show us how to manage our wealth and our resources, to which some of you are probably thinking, show me how to get some wealth and some resources. Can I hear a good amen on a Sunday morning? That was a weak amen. But Listen. Even the brokest person in this room has more wealth and more resources than 85% of the world's population. We need to know how to manage it because we thought we knew what to do with wealth. But I always seem to have more month than money. I got broken Social security and bankrupt pensions and the housing bubble and crooked banks and CEOs with $80 million golden parachutes. Jesus, we thought capitalism was the answer and it's turning out to not be the answer. And in 2018, hear me this morning, people are asking the exact same thing of Jesus as people were asking 2,000 years ago. Can you just show us God? Can you just get all of the other stuff out of the way? This is what the Me Too movement is about. You know, in Hollywood, the the Me Too movement, those that are coming forward who have been sexually harassed and sexually abused, they're saying, hey, look, look what power is doing to the people who gain the power. We need a corrected view of power. This is what the last election was all about. The whole political system is corrupt. So we need an an outsider to come in and take over the political system, and he's going to right the ship. How's that working out for everybody? This is what the whole immigration issue is all about. There are people who are oppressed and beat down in these other places. We need to rethink how we help them out and whether we let them in or whether we keep them out or what do we do. This is what all is going on. People are saying, we thought we knew the answers. We thought Western democracy had all of the answers, and it turns out we don't. Personally, we have racism flaring up again. Personally, we have abuses of power in our own system at all kinds of different levels. Personally, we have greed and people, you know, just kind of gathering all the resources to themselves. Personally, we're broken in our relationships. Personally, the internet seemed to be a good thing. And now porn is just breaking people's minds, literally rewiring men's minds. So that in their 20s now, young men are having to get prescriptions for Viagra because their mind has been rewired by pornography. Nobody saw it coming. The opioid epidemic, all of it happening right here, and we don't understand. So church, so Jesus followers, so Christianity, I want to know what power is. I want to know what relationships should look like. I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. I want to feel what love. No, I'm just kidding. Let's not. Do it. Right? Come on, you guys want to sing it? Come on, here we go. I want to know what love. Three, four, I want to go. Mm, mm. I had to sing this morning, so you guys got to sing this morning. Come on, somebody. That's the cry of a generation. I got to, I didn't pull that song out at random. I got to thinking about that song because it popped into my head the other day when I was studying for this lesson. I got to looking at these lyrics. Written by Mick Jones, a foreigner. I wish I had a perm right now. It was so bad. He says, there's a line in the song where he says, In my life, in my life, there's been heartache and pain. I don't know if I can face it. Yeah, I'm not selling any tickets anywhere, right? (laughs) I don't know if I can face it again. What's he saying? I don't know if I can face it. I don't know if I can look at that again. I thought it was love. I thought it was going to last forever. But it was broken. And now it has left me broken. And now I'm not even sure I can go through that again. I'm not even sure I want to go through that again. I looked. He just actually did an interview uh, February of this year. And they were talking to him about it, and he was asking him about the night that he wrote it. I I think this is so powerful. He's quoted as saying this about writing the song. I think there was something bigger than me behind it. I'd say that song was probably written entirely by a higher force. There was something calling out to me. There was something in me that realized that what I have experienced in my life, it is can't be what I was created for. And I'm here to tell you today that's not what you were created for. There is more. Your God is better than that. Your creator is gooder, if I can say. Your creator is gooder than that. Your Jesus is more wonderful than that. And he stands with open arms and he says, come to me, everybody who's weary and carrying a heavy load and I will give you rest. I'll give you rest. Mick Jones, he goes, he talks about he was living with his girlfriend at that time. He goes in, he wakes her up. He says, oh, I've got this, this almost spiritual song that's breaking over me and it's really moving me. And she said, well, what is it about? And he said, I want to know what love is. And he said, she looked at him and said, I thought you already knew what love is. Dummy messed himself up. He goes into the studio. He brings a church choir in. He's like, there's something spiritual about this. I have to invite a choir. He invited his mom and dad to the record. Why is mom and dad? He's trying to get back to his roots. He's trying to figure out where everything went wrong. And as they're there, the choir begins to pray the Lord's Prayer. And he says, everybody in the room had tears streaming down their face. Because I think there's this universal sense in each and every one of us that we're, we're missing something. Something's not quite right. Things are broken. And and then we get these glimpses, right? They're moments. And we see it in the innocence of a child. Like, yeah, that's the way things should be. We see it in a hug. We see it in a smile or a laugh. We see it in in kindness, acts of kindness. We see it in forgiveness. Like, it's calling to us. It's an echo of something that we've maybe never even heard before, but it's deep within us. The call that we were made for something more. And if I am created in the image of God, if I and we are supposed to look like a good, good creator, then will somebody please just show us the Father? And that'll be enough. That'll be enough. Jesus, just a few verses before, Philip said, you know, Jesus, if you'll show us the Father, that'll be enough for us. Just a few verses before, Jesus was already telling them in his ministry. It was towards the end of his ministry, and he's telling them, listen, I'm going away from you guys, but don't worry. You guys know how to get where I'm going. And Thomas speaks up, and he says, Jesus, we don't even know where you're going. What do you mean we know the way to get there? You can sense their frustration. Where are you going with all this? We don't get it, Jesus. Jesus. There's all these random bits. You know, we we hear you say things like love our enemies. Who does that? We hear you say things like turn the other cheek when somebody hits us on the cheek. We we hear you tell us don't worry about having enough food and clothes. Everybody worries about having enough food and clothes. What do you mean don't worry about? Then you do all these miracles, Jesus. You're walking on water. You're feeding a bunch of hungry people. You know, you come over to this place, you do a coin trick, Ta-da. Jesus is so confused. You say these really confusing things. Blessed are the weeping. I don't feel very blessed when I'm weeping. What in the world do you mean? Blessed are the weeping. Blessed are the meek. No, the meek people aren't blessed. You know, you got to stand up and say something if you want to raise. You got to stand up and say, take care of number one. You do you. What do you mean, blessed are the meek? That's not the. Blessed are the peacemakers? Okay, we kind of get that one. But then you're out not making peace with all the religious people. You're getting them so mad at you that they want to kill you. You're confusing us. Different scenes and different pieces of what you're doing. And you're out there, you know, away from the temple forgiving prostitutes. Nobody's supposed to do that away from the temple. You're out there hanging out with Samaritans and you're a Jew. That's kind of like Giants fans and Dodgers fans having a barbecue together. That doesn't happen. You can't do that. What in the world? You even invited a tax collector to be part of your crew. And you can hear Matthew in the background, hey, now. You know, just, what in the world, Jesus, are you, you're puzzling us. All of these different pieces of of what you're doing and what you're saying and your strange mission in life. And you're telling us you're going to die and that's the way you're going to win. You're telling us about the powerful serving the weak. that, That confusing thing about first will be last, and last will be first, and greatest is the servant. The servant's never the greatest. How do we put together all of these things that are puzzling us? But just like a puzzle, when you gather in all of the pieces of everything that Jesus was, and everything that Jesus said, and everything that Jesus did, you begin to see a picture you begin to see an image from everything that he did. And it is in Jesus Christ that we begin to see something that we have been missing for so long, that humanity had been missing for thousands and thousands of years. But it wasn't just a picture of a good teacher with imperfect wisdom. It wasn't just a picture of a good man who maybe might have been secretly flawed, But in Jesus Christ, we see the image of the very good creator God who loved us so much that he left all of his power and his authority to come down and walk among us, to give us a corrected image, to offer us forgiveness from those things that haunt us and the voices that accuse us. And in Jesus, we see God. In Jesus, in what Jesus did and how Jesus responded, in what Jesus said because of who he was, we can see someone purely reflecting God again. And it is beautiful. And he is wonderful. And gathered in this room and in any given weekend all around the world are two and a half billion people. That would agree with us and say, we have seen something in Jesus and it has changed our lives forever. That I see in him someone who has shown me what love is. I see in him someone who has corrected my understanding of power. So Jesus, show us the Father. When Jesus turns to Philip and You can almost hear the frustration in Jesus' voice. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How in the world can you even say that? How in the world can you even ask that, Philip? If you want to see how the God of all power would treat someone who is weak, look at what I am doing. Philip, if you want to see what the God of endless love would do to someone and maybe even for someone who has abused his love and turned it for wrong, Philip, look at what I am doing. If you want to see what the God of infinite mercy and infinite grace, how he responds to someone who is empty and broken, look at what I am doing for you and you and you and you and and in me. And Jesus is restoring the image of God. All of us. For all of us. Can you stop and just give Jesus thanks for being so beautiful in your life? Could you do that as we pause this morning? Thank you for your kindnesses to us, Jesus. Thank you for your mercies and your undeserved favor. We love you, Jesus. And even though in ourselves we might find hints of a better image, even though in ourselves, like a Mick Jones, we might find traces of a bigger heart, a better heart. What Jesus came to do was to fully restore the image of a good God. But not just in himself, his mission continues with each and every one of us. And Jesus came to restore and fix the image of a good God in us, in you, in you. Turn to somebody close to you and say, even you? He came to restore the image of a good God and the people of his new movement so that we humans would again reflect the goodness of God into a broken world. This is the reason for the church. This is why the church is called the body of Christ, because we mirror Jesus to our world. Jesus works to fix the picture of God in us, so that his world will be drawn to love him again. So that his world will be drawn to love him again. Now, we left Jesus hiking out into the wilderness. He's probably gotten there by now. Some of y'all were probably hoping you were about to come out of the wilderness, but just a little bit more. Jesus is in the wilderness, he's being tempted by the Diabolos, the accuser, the one who loves to point out the brokenness in each and every one of us. And Matthew tells us that after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Probably the most obvious verse in all of the Bible right there. And as he was hungry, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, then tell these stones to become bread. Leverage your power for yourself In the normal course of things, in broken humanity, this is what people with power do. They use power for themselves. They use their wealth for themselves. So use your power, use your wealth of miracles to make yourself not hungry. And Jesus tells him, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is saying, you've already tried this before. You already tried this with other people. Jesus is quoting other people. He said, it is written. This is an old trick, devil. You've been, you've tried this before and the people that have been here before know how to help me get through this. And for that, I pause and I tell you this morning, that's why you need a church family. Maybe it's not this one. Maybe you got to find a different one. That's okay, but you need a church family. Jesus never called anybody to be a Lone Ranger Christian. Everybody needs a sidekick. You need to be part of a small group. You need to have somebody that can speak to you and correct you and love on you when you mess up. So you need to try out small groups. We have this thing called Growth Track. It happens the first four weeks of every month. Yes, I'm doing a commercial right now. The first four weeks of every month called Growth Track right after the service we will feed you and take care of your kids. That alone should make you want to be part of Growth Track. But we talk to you about what God has planned for you and and the way that God has made us all different and, and you need that. You need that in your life. You need to find out what God has planned for your life. And so Jesus commercials over. Jesus goes on and he he tells him, What those before me have learned is that it's best to keep your eyes and your ears on God. And don't look for a shortcut that cuts God out. And so the accuser steps back and he's going to try tactic number two. So he takes Jesus to a high point at the Jewish temple and A lot of people think that he took him to the southeast corner of the temple because that corner of the temple was actually built on cliffs. There was no, like, road below it or anything or buildings below it. It was just a cliff all the way down to the Kidron Valley. And there was actually historical accounts of people getting dizzy up there as they looked over the edge of that. And the devil takes him up to that high point, and he's probably thinking, well, okay, since you like quoting people that have come before you, well, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, Jesus he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now see, this is the part where for a lot of us, religion gets a little bit confusing. For too many people, this or some variation of this is how religion is supposed to work. Because we've all been tempted to try and leverage God for our own comfort. We've all been tempted to try and leverage God in our relationship with God and the good things that we do to impress God so that God will do something for us. And for too many people, this is the version of faith that we were brought up with. For too many people, this is the version of faith that, that we chose to leave. Maybe for too many people, for some of us here, this, this version of faith is the reason you haven't been to church in a while, This is the version of faith that says, if you believe, you will receive. Come on, say it. It's fun to say it. If you believe, you will receive. When I was growing up, when we would talk about this, we'd say, name it and claim it. We'd say, blab it and grab it. Come on, tell somebody next to you. Blab it and grab it. Uh, This is the version of faith that shares those pictures on Facebook. Share this with the first five friends on your friend list and God will give you a new Mercedes tomorrow. But if you don't share, the devil will give you a flat tire on the way to work tomorrow morning. Jesus turns and he answers him and he says, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test and he's quoting something from the Old Testament. He's quoting a, a time when Moses, I don't have time to go into, Moses with Israel with, was with the people of Israel and they were basically trying to tell God, hey, this isn't comfortable and we think things should be done differently and we're supposed to be his people, so tell him to do something for us. And Moses, in so many words, told the people, God is not your genie. That's not how it works. You don't rub the lamp three times and get a blessing. You don't you don't go to church 3 Sundays in a row and then Jesus does nice works does nice things for you. That's not how it works. That's not that's not the way God works. That's magic. That's not the way God works. That's superstition. And that's what Jesus came to correct. That This is not what it is about. You don't earn your way in. You don't impress your way in. But from now on, when you think of God, don't think of them as sitting up there with his arms crossed and begrudgingly he'll dole out nice things to somebody if they feed enough homeless or do enough good works out in the street. That's not the way it works. He said, from now on, when you think of God, I want you to imagine him to be a heavenly father. A perfect kind of father. And for some of us, our ideas of what a father is, has been broken and it's been twisted. It's that whole broken mirror thing again. But Jesus is saying, no, you need to see him as the perfect father. A heavenly kind. The kind of father that's not from around here, but the kind of father that's from a whole different realm entirely. And he already knows what you need before you even ask for it. And so now the tempter's kind of confused, and he's got two strikes on him. It's going to be a while before he gets another at bat, and so this third one's got to be good. So again, the devil takes him to a very high mountain. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor, and we don't know how this happened. They didn't have Google Earth We don't know, you know, how they did it. You know, somehow, some way, he shows them maybe every kingdom and every people group. Maybe he takes them past and present, you know. Maybe it was simply a high mountain around Jerusalem where he could see Jerusalem at nighttime lighting up the sky, and 16 miles to the north would have been Jericho lighting up the sky. We don't know exactly what happens. Most likely, Jesus told his followers about this at some later point. He he didn't elaborate to them. Jesus just tells them, "I, I saw it all. I saw everything that I could have had. I saw everything in this world that I could have ruled over. And the tempter tells him, I will give all of this to you. Jesus, this is what you're here for. Jesus, this is right in the plan. You came to be the king and I can make you the king. But I won't just make you the king over Israel. I can make you king over the whole world. You can rule the whole world and I can make it happen if you will just bow down and worship me. Bow down and worship me. Here's the catch, Jesus. It's all got to happen my way. It's all got to happen in the usual ways. The normal ways that kings and kingdoms come into power. Bow down and worship me And I know you have your own way. I know God's laid out a different way for you. But my way is a lot easier. My way doesn't go by Calvary. My way doesn't pass by a cross. But just because of who you are, a one-time opportunity for three easy payments of bowing down and worshiping me, I can give you all the kingdoms of the world. All you have to do is leverage your position and leverage your power and I'll give them all to you. But here's the thing, all the kingdoms of the world were broken. All the kingdoms of the world have been broken for thousands of years. That's why there was more than one kingdom, because a kingdom rises. And then we know from history that a kingdom turns corrupt, and then a kingdom ultimately falls. And kingdoms Got normal kingdoms, gotten in the normal ways, eventually fall in the normal course of events. But Jesus was here to correct the image. He was here to change the picture. He was here to switch out what we think of when we think of a kingdom. He didn't want those kinds of kingdoms. He did not come to conquer a normal kingdom in a normal kind of conquering way. He did not come to take normal power in the normal ways that people take power. He didn't come to trade for a kingdom. He didn't come to sell out the people and the resources of a kingdom to gain a better kingdom. He didn't come to have somebody rig his election into a kingdom. He didn't come to step on someone else's shoulders to get to the top, but Jesus came to show us a new kind of kingdom, and thank goodness to show us a new kind of king. Jesus came to fix the picture of what real power looks like. He came to correct the image and call to our attention those traces of God that are still inside of us, He came to stir up the memory in us of something that we maybe have never seen before, but deep in our hearts, we all know is true. See, Jesus didn't come to show us the broken kind of kingdom where the subjects lay down their lives to feed the ambitions of a king, but he came to show us the kind of kingdom and the kind of king who would give his own life for his subjects. He came to correct the image of what power does. And our world had never seen anything like this. Our world still has never seen anything like this outside of Jesus. The normal wisdom of the day, the normal counsel of the day would tell us and laugh at us while they say it, that's just not how things work. 30 years after Jesus, Paul wrote and he said, hey, the Jewish people that were looking for that normal kind of king, to them this whole thing was scandalous. And to the wise people of the day, this was foolish. But Jesus came to do something brand new. And he did it to correct an image. And so he told the tempter, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Worship. Worship. Worship like you do in a temple. Worship like you do when you see the image of your God. Worship like what you do when you are humbled before the power of a God. Worship, you know, that thing that you do when the beauty and the majesty of who your God is dawns over your heart and soul and fills you with awe. And with wonder, worship, worship your God. And so Jesus comes down off the mountain. Jesus comes out of the wilderness. And for three short years, he corrects our picture of God. And for three short years, he travels all around, about 30 miles. He travels all around and he forgives sins away from the temple. He forgives sins outside of the normal religious system. He goes to the marginalized and the disabled and he uses his power to help them. He goes to the hungry and he feeds them. He calls to the outsiders and the unworthy and maybe that's you, but I know that that is me. He calls to the outsiders and the unworthy and he invites us to join in his new movement. He sits down and he shares meals and he shares conversation with the people that are abandoned by religion. And then one day, and then one day, Jesus climbs a hill, and Jesus is laid out on a cross, and they drove cruel nails through his hands, and they drove nails through his feet, and because he was a very different kind of king, they put a crown of thorns on his head, and they lifted him into the air and suspended him between heaven and earth, and he took the wages for our sin. He paid every debt of sin and wrong that we owed, every hate-filled word that we have ever spoken, every fist that we have ever thrown, everything that we have ever taken, every time that we've chased an addiction or something else and abandoned a relationship. He took it all and he exchanged it to fix the picture of what God looks like, the way that we see our Father. To remind us what God intended us to look like. To remind us how God intended us to love each other. To forgive each other. To live for the benefit of each other. To feed each other. To care for each other. To care for the sick. To offer our lives and our resources. He didn't want a shortcut to inherit a broken kingdom. He didn't want the cheap plastic ideas of power that we see around us, but in Jesus, we see an image that is greater. In Jesus, we see a picture of something greater. In Jesus, we see a power that wins us over and does us no harm as he wins our hearts. One more time this morning, can you thank him, give him praise for everything that he's done and everything that he's been But Jesus does it all to restore worship. He does it all to restore your worship. I don't know what you thought of God. I don't know maybe why you stay away from God. I don't know what it is that's kept you from religion, from faith. But if you could ever purely see Jesus, if you could ever get past the noise and the distractions and and, and look at Jesus, a Savior on a cross, isolated and alone, alone, paying the debt of our sins, I think that it would awaken something in us. I think that it does awaken something in us. I think we have flashes and moments of this as we live and take on the normal course of life. I think we see it again, like I said earlier, in the innocence of a child and laughter and in forgiveness and in in an embrace. I think we all see what God meant us to enjoy and what God meant for us to experience For some reason, there are things that have gotten in the way. Whatever your experience is, there are things that have come between you and that beautiful image of your maker. And I'm here to tell you this morning that it doesn't have to be that way anymore. That you can get past all the noise. That you can push through the crowds. Push through everything you thought about Jesus before and see Jesus. To be filled with a sense of awe and wonder at who He is, and just how much He loves us. How much He loves us. Can we all stand this morning? Jesus came to show us that when God, who is all-powerful, chooses to demonstrate His power, He does so for our benefit. He crushes the head of our accuser. Jesus did all that He did to show that when God, who is rich in mercy, chooses to display His riches. He lavishes His mercy and His grace on us. He did all that He did and said all that He said to show that when our Heavenly Father chooses to leverage the weight of His influence, He uses it to win our forgiveness and to set us free from condemnation. He is the King that is for us. He is the King that died for us, which means that He is for you. The King that is for the subjects, a brand new kind of being king, a brand new way of being king, a brand new kind of king. If you'd join me this morning all over the room, if you'd close your eyes and bow your head today, I wonder this morning, this, I'm not asking you to do anything. By raising your hand in just a moment, I'm not asking you to step anywhere or go anywhere, but I wonder if you do kind of feel that call, if you do feel that, that new way of seeing God, breaking over your heart. Would you just raise your hand this morning just to tell him, Jesus, I see you. Come on, I see the hands going up all over this room. God bless you, it's so beautiful. Jesus, something about you, can put your hands down this morning. Jesus, there's something about you that's capturing our attention. Jesus, we feel the power of your pull. We feel the power of your attraction. Jesus, help us to find you. Help us in all of this to see you. We need you this morning. Can we all worship this morning wherever you are? Come on, bow your head, close your eyes and just give him worship. Come on, give him praise this morning. Jesus